It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. Uh, well, welcome back into the uh, study of Colossians. Uh, we're actually going to be looking at chapter 3. So I know it took us forever to get out of chapter 1. We blazed through chapter 2. And I apologize if it just felt like we were in a whirlwind as we were walking through chapter 2. There were just so many details. And yet, I again, I was really wrestling through how to present the material. And my encouragement is if you haven't used this study guide, and if you haven't actually just gone and kind of processed through each of those sections, those four bewares at a deeper level, I would highly encourage you to do that. Uh, we're going to be getting into chapter 3 and 4 in these last few sessions. And again, if you remember from the very beginning, uh, Colossians, the first two chapters is more the theology and the doctrine. And then as he comes into chapter 3 and 4, he's talking about the practicality of the Christian life. And it, uh, in terms of the breakdown, it'd be helpful to understand the context. Again, the whole context of what Paul's doing in Colossians is talking about the preeminence of Jesus, that Jesus is to have first place in all things. And so as we come to chapter 3, uh, this first section, uh, I'm calling chapter 3 and 4, the preeminence of Christ practically lived. In other words, we're talking about the practicality of the Christian life and what does it mean to make Jesus first. And in this session and in the next session, we're going to be talking about the inner life with Christ. And it's really in two sections. It's the inner life with Christ in terms of the personal inside stuff, which is verse 1 through 11. And then in the next session, we're going to look at the inner life with Christ as it deals relationally with the people around us, which is in uh, verse 12 through 17. So let's just read uh, this little section and just so it's in front of us and, and then uh, we're going to dive into this. Uh, this is what Paul writes in Colossians chapter 1. We're going to be reading verse 1 through 11. Paul says, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ... Keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you died and your life has been hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is manifested, then you also will be manifested with him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also lay them all aside, wrath, anger, malice, slander, abusive speech from your mouth, do not lie to one another, since you put off the old man with his evil practices, and have put on the new man who is being renewed to a full knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free man, but Christ is all and in all. What an incredible passage. And again, I, I wish we had time to just spend several sessions diving into the depth of this passage. It is so good. And I would encourage you, if you haven't, to grab the study guides for these Colossians studies. Um, below the video or if you're listening to the podcast, in the, in the podcast show notes, you can click a link and you can get access to the notes for each of these sessions as I'm walking through them. If you want the references and the notes. But there's also a study guide that helps you wrestle with the text yourself. And it allows you the opportunity to take these concepts even deeper. So if you haven't gotten that, I'd highly encourage you to do so. I think it'll be very profitable uh, for your own study. 
Uh, But again, we're looking at verses 1 through 11, and we're talking about the practical Christian life in terms of the inner life that we have with Christ. And Paul is really going after this idea that if Christ really is preeminent, and if he is to have first place in all things, as he mentioned in chapter 1, well, then that should be evident, and it should come to fruition in how we live day by day. Uh, He starts in these first four verses, which I love these four verses in Colossians chapter 3. And I'm calling them seek and set. And this is what it says. Again, Paul writes, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you died and your life has been hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is manifested, then you also will be manifested with him in glory. I love Paul's language here. He says, seek Jesus. Keep your mind steadfast, set upon the Lord. Put your mind on heavenly things, not on the things of earth. It's interesting, that word if, he says, therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, The word, it presumes that it's true in the Greek. So maybe a better way of even translating that is since. So you could say, therefore, since you have been raised up with Christ. In other words, Paul's talking to the believers in Colossae. And he says, well, because this is true in your life, therefore, put your mind on Jesus. If Jesus has removed you from the domain of darkness and transferred you into the kingdom of the beloved son, if God has done this radical, transformative, salvific work in your life, Why would we be distracted with the things on earth? Why would we set our minds on the things on earth when we could be pondering and keeping our gaze upon the Lord? Our eyes can be steadfast, fixed upon Christ. Now the word seek, it's interesting. It has an urgency and a desire and ambition contained within the word. In other words, it's not just like, well, you know, when, when it's convenient, I, I might poke my head out and go, oh, well, I, I looked. Uh, I don't know if you ever, you know, some little kid says, hey, would you help me look for this? And you're like, hmm, nope, can't see it. See, that's not the idea. See, the idea here of seek, where he says, hey, seek the things above, is this urgency. It's this overwhelming passion. It's this excitement. It's this desire. It's this, I am not going to stop seeking until I've received it. There's a lot of great illustrations that Jesus gives of this throughout the Gospels. Uh, you have the idea of like uh, the man with, with the pearl. Or you have this idea of the gold hidden in a field, this treasure. And, and when someone finds it, there's this, oh, there's this overwhelming consumption and obsession and desire that I, I've just got to go after it. I will give up everything to obtain that one thing. That's the idea here in the passage. So it's this idea of, hey, don't just be casual. Hey, don't just give God the head nod on Sundays. Hey, hey, don't just, well, you know, I'll, I'll seek the Lord and I'll, you know, a chapter day keeps the devil away. See, it's none of that kind of stuff. This is a consuming, obsessive, overwhelming desire. This is just a, cons- I mean, this just overwhelms your entire life. So Paul says, since you've been raised up with Christ, well, keep on seeking the things above. And it's interesting, even that language that keep on seeking, it presumes that even once you have it, just keep going after it. Uh, I love the language that Jesus gives in the Beatitudes. He says, hunger and thirst after righteousness. 
Isn't it interesting? I hunger and I thirst and I, and I grab some food and I eat it and oh, I'm satisfied. But somehow it just poof, increases my capacity, which means I hunger and thirst more. And so I have to go after food and I seek food. Oh, I grab some food. I eat it. Poof, and it satisfies me, but it just increases my capacity. So I hunger and thirst more. And Jesus says, oh, what if you did that with righteousness? What, what if you just go crazy about righteousness? What if you just go crazy about me? What if you just go after me and just have this hunger and thirst? I love what Andrew Murray said about this. Uh, Andrew Murray said, you, you ask me if I'm satisfied in Jesus. Oh, and with every fiber of my being, I will tell you I'm satisfied in Christ. But let us never hesitate to say, this is only the beginning. See, that's that desire. It's that craving. It's that consumption. It's that overwhelming obsession to keep on seeking the things that are above where Christ is. And then Paul says, set your mind on the things above, not on the things of earth. Because, listen to this, your life, verse 3, has been hidden with Christ in God. And then I, oh, I love this verse. If you just want one verse, this, this might be it. Chapter 1, verse 18, the preeminence, that's really good. I love this one too, though. When Christ, who is our life. I want that to be so true in my life, and I want that to be so true in your life. That if you were to summarize our life, it's Jesus. Christ is my life. Not an aspect, not an add-on, not, not, a, not a part of. He is my very life itself. That, that he, I'm just, oh, I'm abiding in the life of the vine. He is the totality of my life. Not a piece, not a part, not, not, a, not an addition to. He is the totality of our lives as believers. So Paul says, when Christ who is our life is, is revealed, manifested, oh, we will also be manifested with him in glory. If you want to summarize that whole thing, I love how Jonathan Edwards would say it. Jonathan Edwards used to say this, God stamp eternity on my eyeballs. Lynn Ravenhill used to quote this from Jonathan Edwards all the time. And Ravenhill and Edwards just had this desire saying, God, would you, would you take the things that are eternal? Would you take the heavenly? And so stamp it upon my perspective that the only thing I can see, oh, the only thing that I desire is the things that are above. Now, I understand we got to deal with the earthly stuff. If we have jobs, we got to deal with flat tires, we have finances. And hey, those, those are all good. But don't get lost in those. Don't fix your eyes on the things of the world. Fix your gaze on the things that are above. Yes, you got to deal with the flat tires. Yes, you got to deal with finances. Yes, you got to deal with screaming kids. Please deal with your screaming kids. Hey, you got you to deal with you know, eating. You got to deal. That's all true. But where is your gaze fixed upon? See, so many times we're so lost in the mundane. We're so lost in the momentary. Uh, we're, we're lost in this, thinking that this matters forever. Uh, one of the things that I've, I've done over the last decade or so is that when I'm in a crisis and I'm like, man, this just stinks and this is so hard and this is so difficult, a lot of times I'll catch myself and say, okay, Nathan, <laughs> is this going to matter 100 years from now? Probably not. In fact, if, if you said, is it going to matter a year from now? Probably not. And yet how much more is it not going to matter in 10 million gazillion years into eternity? See, what I really want to put my gaze on, what I really want to put my emphasis on, what I really want to be concerned and burdened about is the things that are going to last for eternity. And there's not a lot that lasts for eternity. See, what if I would get wrapped up in the things that lasted, the things that actually mattered? And again, yeah, I got to deal with the mundane things, 
But what if my gaze was steadfast? What if, as a writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 12, what if I would fix my eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of my faith? What if I would get lost in the reality of Christ? What if he was my obsession? What if he was my delight? Not in mere theory, but in the practical reality of living moment by moment by moment. So Paul says that if Christ really is to be first in our lives, if this is all true, what would it look like for God to stamp eternity on our eyeballs? What would it look like to set your mind on things above? What would it look like to seek Christ above all things? What would it look like to be obsessed with him? Now Paul comes out of that concept and he begins to get really, really specific. He says, do you want want to talk about this idea of setting your mind on things above? Do you really want to talk about what would it look like in my life for me me in my life not to get wrapped up in myself, but to get wrapped up in Jesus? Paul says, oh, let me give you some ideas. And he starts with this idea of slaying the selfish. He says in verse 5 through 7, therefore, so again, if you want Christ, if you're going to seek and set Christ in your mind and in your heart and your focus, Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. And in them, you also once walked when you were living in them. Paul says you are to remove anything and everything that's not Jesus, that you are to slay the selfish. In fact, he, goes, it's, he uses such a strong language. He says, consider these as dead, which is some translations say mortify, but it means to put to death, or if you want to maybe perhaps more literal translation in today's culture, take to the undertaker. Hey, take these to the mortician. Put these to death. In other words, don't trifle with sin. Rather, you are to kill these things. In other words, we should not be trifling with sin. We should not put our gaze upon the pleasures of this world. Our gaze is on on Jesus. So Paul says, therefore, those selfish, self-protective, prideful, arrogant, lustful desires of our heart, put those to death. Throw them in a grave. Take them to the mortician. And just bury them and get rid of them in your life because they should not be there if your eyes are set on Jesus. Now, this list that he gives us is really similar to the list of the things of the flesh in Galatians chapter 5. Let me, let me read the fruit of the flesh from Galatians 5. Paul says, The deeds or the fruit of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as, I, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, that is such strong language that if you are living in these, and these are, these are your, the normal practice of your life, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. So I know you're like, well, but I'm a Christian. It seems like what Paul's saying is, if you really have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness, where all this stuff lives, and brought and transferred in the kingdom of light, and you're setting your gaze upon Jesus, and your mind is steadfast upon things that are above, 
Well, then he's going to so radically change you that your life is not going to be addicted and your life's not going to be wrapped up in this fruit of the flesh stuff. Because when this is my habit, when this is my lifestyle, when you cut me down the middle and this is what is exposed, Paul says that's not the life of Christ. This is the domain of darkness stuff. And I cannot have one foot in the kingdom of the sun and one foot in the kingdom of darkness and try to somehow live on, on, on that fence. You can't do it. You will fall one direction or the other. So are you going to be obsessed, obsessed and go after Jesus and let him remove all the, the, the impurity and the junk and the, the addiction and the habits of your heart? Or are you just going to get wrapped up in the domain of darkness again? See, this stuff, the domain of darkness has to die, be put to death, taken to the mortician in our lives. For Paul says, and it's so emphatic in the passage, for those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom. And I do not like that language, but that's what it says. So you're going to have to deal with this in your own soul. And can I encourage you, if you, as we go through this list and you're like, wow, that really describes my life. Maybe you need to spend some time with Jesus. Maybe you need to get, uh, just, just humble yourself and throw yourself at the foot of the cross and just say, Lord, I'm recognizing that I've been calling myself a Christian and I go to church and I know the right answers and I know the information, but the reality is that God, you've got to bring this stuff to death in my life because I cannot keep living in the domain of darkness while saying I'm a Christian because the reality is I need you demonstrating your life, changing my life, transforming my life, sanctifying my life. Now, we need that. Now, does it mean you're going to do it perfectly? I don't know. But he's given us everything we need for life and godliness. So we don't have to dabble in this. We can have freedom and triumph from the domain of darkness, from all these fruits of the flesh. Uh, well, let's get into the list that Paul gives us in, here in our passage. In verse 5, he begins this list, and he says that you are to literally mortify, that you're, you're to bring to death, Sexual immorality. Uh, some translations say fornication. Uh, it's the Greek word porneia, uh, which is where we get the word pornography from. And often the way it's used in scripture, it's like the sexual immorality in terms of a broad overview or in a general sense. So anything that's not according to the covenant of God is under the banner of sexual immorality. Uh, and again, this is going to be stomping on cultural toes. And, and hey, I'm not, I'm not interested in playing the games this is what the Bible says. So again, if you don't like it, you've got to do it with Jesus. But sexual immorality includes everything that's outside of the context of covenantal marriage between one man and one woman. So if you're like, well, I'm in marriage and I'm in covenant, can I therefore lust about somebody else? No, because you're called to have fidelity in marriage, only between you and your spouse. Well, our culture says that it is okay that marriage looks like this. See, we're not defining marriage based on the culture. We're defining marriage based on Scripture. And anything outside of that is called sexual immorality. It's called fornication. Uh, when I engage in pornography, whether as a married person or as a single person, that's sexual immorality. When as a single person, you dabble and play around with, uh, with, with uh, I'm trying to be PG, uh, but when you, with somebody else, engage in any sort of sexual activity, that's sexual, sexual immorality. It's fornication. So this idea of sexual immorality is this broad term that includes anything out of chastity in singleness and fidelity in marriage. 
and that is not to be in our lives. That, that I am not to be wrapped up in lust. I'm not to be wrapped up in pornography. I, hey, the, the homosexual agenda, hey, uh, anything outside of marriage, the covenantal marriage of the marriage bed, see, that is not allowed biblically. Now you look at me and you say, but Nathan, this thing is all over the place. I know. And you can say, well, we, had a, we have it a whole lot harder than Paul. I mean, you can just pull out of our pockets our iPhones and suddenly we have access to all this junk. I know. And it is a hard day in which we live because of that. But Paul's day was, I would, I would almost argue, just as difficult. I understand he didn't have technology. They didn't have iPhones. In that sense, they didn't have the, pre- the prevalence of just pushing a button in the, in the secrecy of your own home. I get that. But when you look at the Roman world of Paul's day, it was all wrapped up in sexual immorality. In fact, isn't it interesting that the early church, when they were debating whether or not could, do Gentiles have to take on the laws of a Jew, do they have to become a Jew to be saved? The conclusion in the, the church council in the book of Acts was, no, a Gentile does not have to be a Jew. But one of the things, and they only give a couple of things, right? They only give the... the the, the blood stuff, this thing strangled, and, and this one, sexual immorality. And the reason I think it was on the list is when you looked at the Roman culture of Paul's day, the whole world was wrapped up in this. Uh, marriage was taken so lightly, and the whole idea of marriage is marriage was convenient. In fact, we'll get into this as we get into later in chapter 3. But marriage was all about convenience. And therefore, okay, I'll be married, but I'll, I'll, I'll be married so I can have, a, have an heir. But then I, hey, I want my pleasure. I want my fun. So I will go out and I can sleep with whoever I want to sleep with. That was normal in Paul's day in the culture. Homosexuality was normal in Paul's day. Pornography was all over the streets in Paul's day. You had this, the temple gods and goddesses stuff, and you had all the prostitution involved, and there's all this stuff along the streets and all these signs and all these. I mean, pornography was prevalent all over the place. So I think, and yeah, it's different in today. I understand it's more hidden in today. I, I, get, I get the differences. I do get the differences. But folks, the same twisted propensities that we have as humanity is the same twisted propensities that Paul is dealing with. And he says that if you are a believer, your life is not to look like the perverted world around you. There should be a radical change that has happened in the depth of your soul. Why? Because he's transferred you from the kingdom of darkness and brought you in the kingdom of the dear son, Jesus. That he is dealing with the darkness and the shadow areas of your life and he's bringing forth light and life into your being. And again, if you are sucked into this stuff, if you're all wrapped up into this, is it because maybe you're not even a believer? And I know that's hard to hear in today's culture. I get, I get that, but we have to analyze that. If I'm all wrapped up in the domain of darkness and the domain of darkness describes and defines my life, maybe I actually just need to be saved. Maybe I need to embrace the reality of the cross. Maybe I do need to repent and believe and be baptized for that is what scripture says. Maybe I do need to really put my faith and my hope in Jesus and his finished, full, sufficient work upon the cross. We live in days that are marked by sexual immorality. I am so frustrated. Uh, I, it, you cannot watch. It's like you cannot watch a single movie or television show. It's hard to read even a single book, even Christian books. They don't have, they're not dabbling in the reality of sexual immorality. And whether they show it explicitly or whether it's all in your mind, 
The reality is we are a culture who has gotten lost in sexual immorality. And Paul says, ponder this. You are to put that to death. And now if you're like most people, you're like, that's impossible. How on earth, how on earth am I going to bring that to death in my life? A guy is a guy. A man, a man is always going to deal with this stuff. That's not what I read in Scripture. Scripture says there's hope. Scripture says there's freedom. Scripture says that I can walk in purity and righteousness and holiness. But again, as we've been talking, especially in chapter 2, as we were walking through that, you cannot do this out of self-effort. You cannot do this out of discipline. You cannot grit your teeth, take old showers, flick rubber bands. I tried all that and never worked. It never deals with the heart issue. See, the only way you're ever going to walk in true freedom and holiness and righteousness is God is going to have to come in and do something in your life. Jesus is going to have to change the very depth of who you are. And that is the reality of salvation. In fact, there's such a dramatic, radical shift that has taken place that Paul says, we're going to have to call you a brand new creature, a new creation. It is so stark of a difference. So if your life looks just like it was before you met Jesus, maybe it's because you're not even a Christian. Maybe, maybe you haven't experienced the reality and that's why you keep struggling in this world of junk. I know that's hard to hear, but would you freshly allow the Holy Spirit to bring conviction and find yourself at the foot of the cross and surrender and fully put your faith, your trust, your hope in Christ Jesus? Repent, be baptized, and embrace the reality of the cross. And again, I, the reason I'm so hammering this is because this was a huge, huge issue in Paul's day and this is out of control in our day. And it, it, I'll just leave it there. Uh, Paul deals not only with the idea of sexual immorality, again, in a general sense, but he gets really specific. He says the word impurity, which means impurity or uncleanness, especially that which is dirty and impure. So let me give you a few verses where this, these words show up. Ephesians 4.19 says that they, talking about the pagans, the Gentile world, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with a greediness. So they're not even just living in impurity. They're like greedy for more and more of it. Ephesians 5.3 says, it uses both those words, but immorality, porneia, and any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. In, in other words, as a Christian there should not be any of this sexual immorality or impurity in your life because it shouldn't be named, which does not mean let's not talk about it, which is kind of what the church has done. Let's just not talk about this and we'll be fine. That's not what Paul is saying. He's saying if, if the world was to go through your life with a fine tooth comb, if they were to look at your mind of how you've thought over the last 72 hours or even the last 24 hours, would they have anything to claim? Would they have anything to name? Would they be able to put their finger on any impurity or any sexual immorality. He says, as a saint, as a believer in, in God, because you've been transferred from one kingdom and brought into the kingdom of Christ, there should be nothing in your life for them to point at. So it is not proper for Christians to have sexual immorality or impurity in their lives. 1 Thessalonians 4, 7 says this, for God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. Woo! Uh, Romans 6.19 says, I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity, 
uh, and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness. Now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. So Paul says, hey, you used to just take your life and present it over to, to all this junk and all this impurity. Now take your life and give it to Jesus, who's going to lay work, righteousness, and sanctification in your life. Now, Paul starts with the sexual, sexual immorality and impurity, and then he goes on to this idea of passion, uh, which is the Greek word pathos, which typically is understood as a strong feeling or emotion. But in the context of what he's talking about, it's being used in the sense of a lustful passion and this overwhelming consumption and a desire, which is more than just, it's more than just sexuality kind of lust. It's this overwhelming craving and consumption and desire for anything with great passion. And again, often it's in the, in the realm of sexuality, but, but listen to this from 1 Thessalonians 4. Paul says that each of you would know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion, like the Gentiles who do not know God. In other words, the Gentiles, they live in just lustful passion. We as believers are to know how to possess this vessel, our lives, with sanctification and honor. And then there's that verse again, for God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. He goes on and talks about evil desire, which is a lustful or self-indulgent craving. In other words, it's anything that displaces proper affections for God. So anything that takes my attention or my, uh, my, my, my affection from God, Paul, that, that's the idea of this evil desire. So 2 Corinthians 10.5 says, take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. See, nothing should take the preeminence of Christ in our life. He is to have first place in all things. So take everything captive that comes in your mind. Don't allow the junk to remain. Kick it out. Why? We are believers. There should be no evil desire in our hearts, in our minds. And then Paul adds this one. He says, nor should there be any greed, in some translations say covetousness, which is putting anything in the place of God. So it is a worship of self or something, whether it be money or family or sex or success or whatever. And Paul says all of this is idolatry. So in Ephesians 5.5, 5, Paul says this, For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. So any time that we covet, any time that we greed, any time that we have this consumption and we desire something more than we long for Jesus, we have become an idolater. We have placed an idol in our lives. For some people, it's themselves. For some people, it's how they look. For some people, it's entertainment or sports. Some people, it's money and success. Sometimes we spiritualize this and say, oh, it's the size of my church or the, the size of my ministry or the intimacy that I have with Christ. And all of that becomes actually more important to us than even Jesus himself. Paul says this stuff should die in our lives. Put it to death. In other words, this is how you used to live. When you were in the domain of darkness, this described your life. And I don't know about you, but this describes my life before Jesus radically got a hold of me. But we have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness you are a brand new creature. Live like it, says Paul. So yes, this may be how you used to live, but don't keep living like it. And then Paul adds an entire, <laughs> entirely other, uh, an entire 
new list or an, an addition to all this. And he says, hey, put off all these things. So, so look at verse 8 and 9. He says, but now lay them all aside. And then he includes these. Wrath, anger, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you put off the old man and its practices. It's interesting that Paul is talking about the things that come out of our heart and out of our mouths. And he says that we are to lay them aside, which has this idea of to take off a garment and literally throw it away. It has this idea to uh, like pick up a rock and throw it as far as you can. That you're to take these things in your heart, these things in your life, these things in your mind, and you're not just to like, well, I just, I'll just try not to engage in them. Paul says, take them off like an overcoat. Like, just dump the coat on the side. But even stronger than that, take it like a rock and huck it. Just throw it as far as you can away from you. Don't get near these things. Both the sexual immorality and all the impurity stuff and the greed and the covetousness and the idolatry, but also this list that he gives. And he starts with, again, this is the heart and mouth stuff. He deals with wrath and anger. Uh, the word wrath is the Greek word orge, and the anger is thumus. So to explain the difference between wrath and anger, uh, here's what one scholar said. These two words are orge and thumus. And the difference between them is this. Thumus is a blaze of sudden anger, which is quickly ignited and just as quickly fades or dies. The Greeks likened it to a fire in straw, which quickly blazed and just as quickly burned itself out. Orge is anger, which has become ingrained. It is long-lasting, slow-burning anger, which refuses to be pacified and nurses its wrath to keep it warm. For Christians, both the burst of temper and the long-lasting anger are both forbidden. Uh, I don't know about you, I've met a lot of people who just said, well, anger is my personality. That's just who I am. This is how I've grown up and this is who I am. Not if you're in Christ. See, that stuff has been put to death you should allow the Holy Spirit to enable you to just huck and throw this stuff as far away from your life as possible. Well, I'm not an angry person, but man, deep down on the inside, I just stew over this stuff. and I'm just so angry. I'm just, I don't show it on the outside though. That is not to be in your life either. So whether you have the outbursts of anger or whether it's that slow crock pot of stewing, of wrath and frustration on the inside, none of that should be in your life as a Christian. Isn't this convicting? Man, I hate this list. Paul goes on, if that wasn't bad enough. He says, get rid of malice, which is an attitude of ill will toward another. It's a viciousness of mind. It's an all-pervading evil. It's, it's a desire that someone would be harmed or hurt. It's that kind of an idea. He says, get rid of slander, which is interesting. It's the word blasphema, which is an insulting or slanderous speech. It's misrepresenting someone. It's to circulate untrue reports against someone. And it's interesting, when, when it's against God, we call it blasphemy, which again, where that word comes from. But, but anytime I talk bad about somebody else, uh, I'm talking to somebody else, did you know that so-and-so did this? And -da 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 -da. All of that is slander. I'm literally insulting and demeaning that person in the eyes of somebody else. I'm misrepresenting them. Paul says, get rid of it, along with abusive speech, which is this lewd, obscene, dirty, vulgar speech. And then he ends this whole list by saying, and you, hey, stop lying, because you put on Christ, who is the truth. So anything that does not look like Jesus is to be removed from your life. Slay that selfish stuff in your heart. Just get rid of it. 
it should not remain. Can I ask you, <laughs> where are you in this list? My guess is all of us have some aspect of this in our hearts. And, and maybe, again, if, all, if, if you're still defined by all this, if this still is describing your life, maybe you need to repent, be baptized, and actually become a believer in Jesus Christ. But maybe this stuff just pops up once in a while. Maybe you're saying, Nathan, I, I genuinely am a Christian and, and I, I, I'm, I'm longing after Christ and I'm, I'm putting my mind on him and I'm, and I'm seeking and I'm going after him. But, but man, once in a while, there's a flare-up of anger or, or once in a while, I just talk bad about somebody or, or once in a while, man, this impurity stuff just has a hold of my life. Do you know what the solution is? Go after Jesus. Again, Jesus is the solution to every single one of these problems. See, don't get lost in the problem. Don't get lost, as we mentioned in chapter 2, in self-effort and, and discipline. Go after Christ, who is our life. And if you are a genuine believer, and, and hey, you've repented, and you've been baptized, and, and you're going after him, and, and you're seeking him, uh, and you're keeping your gaze uh, on him, and, and you fixed your eyes upon Christ, then don't make excuses for these times of sin in your life. Rather, repent and freshly Jesus and keep pressing in. Read 1 John. I love 1 John. It's this, this whole idea that we have an advocate, that we don't have to sin. But if you do sin, oh, we have an advocate. So embrace the advocate who is Jesus. These things that Paul's listing should not define our lives. These things should not just keep coming up in our lives. He wants to sanctify. He wants to transform and completely eradicate these things from our lives. Paul says, take it off as an overcoat. Just remove, just let it go. In fact, throw it. Allow the Spirit of God to throw these things far away from you so these do not define your life. And Paul, in verse 10 and 11, concludes all this, and he talks about what you are to put on. He says this, having put on the new man who is being renewed to a full knowledge according to the image of the one who created him, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew and circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and freeman, but Christ is all and in all. Paul says, just as you've taken off this former way of living, hey, just as you took off this domain of darkness, so too you are to put on something. So just as you took off this overcoat called sin, put on a new overcoat called Christ. Isaiah calls him our robe of righteousness, that he is what we are putting on. He is my righteousness. He is my holiness. He is my sanctification. He is our life. So Paul says that, hey, you are to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he makes a statement of whom we are being renewed, uh, being renewed to a full knowledge. The word renewed, and don't get lost in this, but it's a present passive participle and it's this idea that I'm not the one in charge of this. God himself is renewing me, and it's a constant renewal. So, hey, this is never completed. Hey, I, I never get to the point where I'm like, oh, I'll never have to be renewed. There's a constant, continual, present moment by moment by moment renewal in Christ. So when I put on the Lord Jesus Christ, when I fix my gaze upon him, there's this constant renewing in my life of Jesus Oh, that's phenomenal. And he says that there's this new man who is being renewed, think about this, to a full knowledge. 
That word full knowledge, we've used it already in chapter one, but it's that word epinosis. It's this super knowledge or a full knowledge, which is that term that the Gnostics would often use and boast about, that they had this superior knowledge over everybody else. Paul says, think about this, that here you are, you put on Jesus Christ and you, you're, a new, you're a new creation, you're a new man in Jesus, and you are being this continually renewed and filled up with this full super knowledge of God himself. Wow, that is incredible. He says the Gnostics have nothing. They talk about superior knowledge, but they don't got it. Why? Because we as believers have the fullness of Jesus in our life. And we, as we put on the Lord Jesus Christ, are being renewed day by day, moment by moment in Jesus. And he says we're being renewed to this full knowledge according to the image. And there's we're being renewed to the way that we were made. So as you go back into Genesis and you look at this creation that we were made in the image of God, and we're being renewed, we're being conformed to the image of Christ as Paul says in Romans 8, verse 29. There's this constant renewal of how we're being remade and renewed according to Christ. And I love, I love how he concludes all this. He says in verse 11, it's a renewal where there is no distinction between Greek or Jew or circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free, but Christ is all and in all. And what it's really getting to is this idea that there's no distinction of persons. Salvation is available for everyone. See, whether you're a Jew or whether you're a Gentile, whether you're a male, whether you're a female, hey, whether, whether you come from this region or whether you come from that region, whatever, whether you're red or yellow, black or white, you are all precious in his sight, as the old song said. That salvation is available. It's not based on prestige. It's not based on looks. It's not based on wisdom. It's not based on anything that typically divides the world. It's all based on Christ, which means it's available to all. So Christ is all and in all. That when you have the reality of salvation, you don't have a piece of him. You have all of him. Could I encourage you? Are there things in your life that should not be there? Would you repent? Are there, are there shadow areas that you're holding on to, would you repent and go after Christ? Is Jesus truly the focus and the delight and the hunger of your life? Are you living for the things of this world and the pleasures of the moment? Are you, are you fixing your gaze heavenward? And as Edward said, is, is eternity stamped upon your eyeballs? Paul says that there is a specific practical way that a Christian is supposed to live. And again, as we talked about already in chapter two, this is not done through discipline. This is not done through self-effort. This is not done through grit and determination. This, you can only live the Christian life by having the Holy One, God himself, indwelling your life through the Spirit of God. It's that grand mystery that we talked about in chapter one. Christ in you, the hope of our glory. That is the only way that I can live as I'm called to live in this, in this day, in this age. The only way that I can have freedom, the only way I can walk in victory, the only way that I can have purity and righteousness and holiness and hope is that I need Jesus to be doing this in me. And yes, I'm participating and yes, I'm involved. But this isn't by my effort. This isn't by my ability, nor am I being passive and just saying, okay, God, if you want to do it, just do it. Otherwise, I'm going to live how I want to. There's this interaction between my life and his life that brings about a brand new reality. Would you go after that? Would you go after Jesus and let him just change you, bring you to a whole nother level? See, we as Christians are not to look like the world around us. There, be, there should be something easily identifiable 
about our lives in this world that we look ever more and more like Jesus and less and less like this world. Is that true in you? Is the only explanation for your life Jesus? Because it's possible. Would you go after him? Let's pray. Lord, we need you. Oh, I need you. Lord, I don't want to just talk about you with, with, with my lips and not live the reality of the Christian life with the everyday moments of my life. Lord, I want to talk and I want to live the Christian life. Lord, I don't want to have good doctrine and bad behavior. Lord, I don't want to have correct theology and yet my life looks miserable. Lord, I, I don't want to say, woo, I'm a Christian, and yet my life looks like just everyone around me. Lord, I do not want to live. I do not want to be tainted. I don't even want to have a shadow area of my life from the domain of darkness. So, Lord, would you come and would you invade every aspect of my being? Would you shine your bright light, you through the Holy Spirit? Would you come and would you convict anything in my life that doesn't look like Jesus? Would you slay the selfishness of my soul? Would you come and would you deal with any of the impurity and any of the pride and any of the greed and any of the language, any of the heart stuff that doesn't look like you. Lord, I want to talk right. I want to live right. I want to think right. Lord, if this world was to come into my mind, if it to come into my life, look at how I talk, they would have no accusation against you, which means, Lord, I need you. And Lord, I just pray that for those who are listening, that, oh, you would move in their lives, that you would bring great conviction if necessary the Lord, that you would bring about true salvation, that it's more than just nodding our heads and checking off a true and false test and going to church, that the reality is, is that you radically want to change our life, that we do not have to look like the world around us. We do not have to be addicted to the same things as the world around us, that we as Christians can walk in freedom and victory and triumph and have hope and joy in this world. Oh, what a phenomenal reality that we have in you. Lord, you must become first place in every area of our lives. So Lord, we just we cry out and we declare that we need you. Oh, we need you. We need you. And Lord, thank you for such a possibility. Thank you that we can actually walk in this reality. We love you, Jesus. We give you all the praise and the glory in your precious, powerful name. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellerslie.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.